0: Good morning. We are continuing our sizzling summer sermon series on the letters of the Apostle Paul. And we are in our, is this the second or third Romans? I forget. This is just the second one. It It feels like I've been doing this forever, which is such a good thing in Romans. I say that, one of the greatest theologians who ever lived, Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, wrote in his commentary in 1939 that this chapter, the fifth chapter of Romans, is the most important chapter of the Bible. You heard that at Bible study the other night, right? Yeah, Earl Palmer says that. So that means this is important, right? That means you should perk up your heads and pay attention. And and also that a lot of this is going to sound very familiar to you. In some ways, I think what Bart meant was that this is the encapsulation of the whole story of the Bible in just a few verses. So open your ears and open your hearts to this portion of God's word to us. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves God's love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, Much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. The power of this passage of Romans 5. It is a fairly daunting passage, actually. There's a lot to this passage. There's a lot to the Book of Romans as well. Many scholars say, and it's fairly easy to verify that that more pages have been written about the letter to the Romans than any of his other epistles, and in fact, the commentaries on Romans outnumber many commentaries on the Gospels. If you head over to the library at St. Mary's Seminary on Roland Avenue and wander through the carols over there, as I do from time to time, just to see what else is there, you'll see more books on Romans than commentaries on pretty much any other book in the Bible except Genesis, which means something. As I shared the reflection from Karl Barth, this is really a foundational passage in Romans. A lot of his other writings and usings really hinge on the principles stated in, in this chapter. So it has been a daunting week, frankly, trying to put things together to to have something make sense so that we can have something to come away with. One of the commentators I read suggested that in the sermon on Romans 5 that the pastor or lector, whoever the reader is, read the passage through three times and then have the congregation read the passage three times. And then we do that again. And the majesty of the words will somehow infuse us with meaning and the Spirit. And I thought that might be interesting, but maybe not for this week. Maybe we'll do that another time. So I think I'm going to approach this passage a little different way and just tell you two stories that I think really begin to bring out the takeaway that Paul intends for us in these passages. I think these stories might do the trick. So the first story... Actually, kind of both of these stories come from my week that I had two weeks ago now out in California at a continuing education event. One of the great things when you go to these conferences is maybe not so much the topic that is going to be covered, but the side conversations that you have with people there, and there are maybe 50 or 60 people there, and and there are maybe two other conferences that were going on. So you get to know people at the tables, and as we are human, we tend to sit at the same table at every meal because we know that's a safe place, right? I'm going to sit by that window, and then if other people come, then I'll get to know them. But this is my place. So I had a, a running conversation with a, a pastor. He's second career pastor, lifelong Californian who told me a story that was pretty interesting. So in his previous life, as they said, he was a business owner and a consultant and had some fairly high profile connections. He was recalling back, this is uh, a number of years ago, we'll figure out the number in a second, that he was celebrating the 10 year anniversary of his business and they had been pretty successful and he was able to recruit for this big event, this big gala event, a former president of the United States. You know, that's that's pretty big. So the president was going to come, and he was tasked then, finally, after all the logistics were set, the hotel was set, the rooms were set, all the dining facilities were set, there was one last guest that he needed to go to the airport and pick up individually because whatever else happened. So it's 9.30 at night and he's driving to the airport to pick up this person who's coming in from Philadelphia. And he finally gets him and is driving back now to the hotel. And the first thing that he says to this guest, who himself was fairly significant, a high profile individual, who had had some dealings in the White House with transitions between governments, between Republicans and Democrats, and how the transitions happen, The first thing that he remembers that, that came out of his mouth was, so have you met President Ford before? Now that, that's a few years ago, right? But he, he remembers this conversation because the response that came from his guest was, well, you might want to rephrase that question. The question isn't whether or not I have met President Ford before, but has he met me? And for a second there, you know, is this guy that proud? That, you know, he's the one who has to be met. But he said, what I'm getting at is it doesn't matter who I meet. It doesn't matter at all. It matters whether or not they care about me. Whether I mean anything to them. That's what's most important for any speaker anywhere. It's not who they are, but it's do they care for me at all? Do I make a difference at all? So it's not who you know that counts. is kind of who knows you who, or who cares for you that makes the difference in life. So that's part one of the Apostle Paul's passage here in Romans. He says, For a good person, someone might die for them or give their life for them. But for someone unworthy, like each and every one of us, you know, no one would ever give a second thought. But God in Christ goes to his death for us. So we matter to God. I mean, the bottom line is, we really matter to God. It doesn't matter who we are. All people in God's worth matter to God. That's part one. The second story kind of comes from my visit out there because the organizers of my event were very gracious and were very fortunate in getting a block of discount tickets to Hamilton. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's been here. at The Hippodrome, and the prices were still pretty high. And we got out there and they said, Oh, here's some discount tickets. We have a block and it's not too far back. Anybody want to go? Oh, yeah, you know. It's like a three-hour drive up down to San Francisco. And I was in the room where it happened. <laughs> yeah. And after having heard Hamilton about a hundred times in the car with Emma, it was fantastic to actually to see it. And that gave me a case of the history. So I was a history major in college. Oh boy, so I had to go back and I had read Rod Chernow's book years ago and I have this biography of George Washington that Chernow wrote before he wrote Hamilton. It's about this thick too. And I had to go back and kind of reread and kind of figure out you know, how things were going. And in this particular performance of Hamilton, George Washington was definitely the most impressive of the actors. I mean, this guy was on. I mean, he was a little short. He needed to be about four inches taller, but he had a voice like Thomas. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He did. He He was like, uh, yeah, he had a voice like Thomas. So I had to go back and read some things. And one of the interesting things during Washington's command during the Revolutionary War was his treatment of prisoners. Now, it was the practice of the British, particularly after the battles of New York and Monmouth, to put prisoners of war on prisoner ships in New York Harbor. That They were infamous for that, and many of those prisoners died. They were ill-treated, they were poorly fed, they were beaten. They were just ignored out there in the harbor. And one of the distinctive features of George Washington as a general was his merciful treatment of prisoners. Very early in the war, after the Battle of Trenton, in January 1776, as it was wintertime, he housed the prisoners in tents like other troops. He fed them the same food. He guarded them minimally. And the response was fantastic. (laughs) Nobody escaped, nobody wanted to leave a warm tent with food. They were better treated than the troops who were actually fighting in the field there were more desertions of British troops and Hessian troops through that phase of the war than anybody ever expected. And a historian, and, and histories about Washington are always interesting, kind of hard to figure out, because you, you never know how much of an interview ever took place. But everybody does know that Washington was an Episcopalian, a practicing Episcopalian, and he might have been a deist like everybody else. But when he was asked about his treatment of prisoners, He said, in a fairly stoic way, as he would say, that he always felt it fit to treat every man, as he would say, in the same way that God had intended to treat him, with mercy and justice. And in that way, Washington began to personify the best of the American Revolution in treating every single person with mercy. That is a given. That is a given for everyone, to be treated with mercy and justice. That's something that started long, long ago. I pray that it might continue that way, that every person in our land be treated with mercy and justice, fairly and equally. That's how the Apostle Paul saw how it is that God works with us in Christ, that though we are not deserving of mercy, That's what we get in Christ. That is a claim that we can make on no basis of our own, but only humbly asking for mercy. And we are given it. The way we understand that week in and week out, is not just in our hearing, but something that happens in our hearts in the way that we are touched, that we in turn can go out and give mercy to someone else who might in some way be undeserving, but we can share it, and we can be those people who God intends for us to be, giving out what we receive in Christ. The way we do this, most clearest of all, on the first Sunday of the month, is to share in this meal, to share in the body and the blood of Christ, who came and lived and died and was raised for each and every one of us, and not just us, but for all in this world. People who recognize Christ and people who don't. Christ came to save the world. For God so loved the world. So that's something that we proclaim when we share this meal. That God is for all, that God loves all, that God's mercy is for all. And we can be an emissary of that. So that's what we do. And this is why we share on this communion morning. Thanks be to God.